we've been going through this series since October on what a healthy church is. And, you know, I try to be up front uh, as much as I can to, to let people know that, that this isn't just going through the Bible study. It's not just going through sermons. It's not just a series that we're going to forget. I, I believe that the series of what we've covered since October is, is foundational to who we need to be as a church. As I've said before, I think there are elements of, of what we've read in our church already. But like any church, we have a long way to go. And that's really the point of it is. A healthy church, in some ways, you think of it like a destination. It's somewhere we're going. But the joy is not only going to happen when we arrive at the destination. The joy has to be in the journey. That we journey together as a church. We journey together as a community of faith. We journey together as Christians. People from all different walks of life. All different levels of spiritual maturity. You know, the, the, the greater the diversity in our church, the greater the unity of that diversity, the more powerful the message of who we are. So if you feel like, you know, you don't quite fit in, that's that's great. You know, I mean, I'm kind of thankful that I don't look out there into the audience and see a bunch of me's out there. I, I don't know that I would want to preach to a bunch of people like me because they would probably, I don't know, maybe be a little too judgmental or critical or, you know, they might start checking their fantasy baseball um, during the sermon or something. I'm glad that we were different. And we should celebrate that instead of just wanting to find people just like us because the more we have in common outside of the commonality we have in Christ, the less our unity is based on Jesus. The less our unity is based on his spirit. The more different we are, we have that unity and love. All right. That's something supernatural that God's doing. And so healthy church is more, again, than just a topic, more than just a, just a series. It's something that, that, that really is foundational and directional for what I think for all churches, but especially because this is where I am for this church. And so we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about what the kingdom is and the kingdom, he's talking about what a disciple is. And now he's kind of summing it up. He's bringing it all together. And he's, he's made some, some pretty strong statements and he's going to make another one today. But before we get there, let me just ask you this question. This question is, how do you know? How do you know anything? Well, there's actually a field of like study philosophy that asks this question. And you don't need to remember this, you're not gonna be tested on it. But it's called epistemology. And epistemology basically is the question of how do we know what we know or what we think we know? So what it tries to get to is like, like the real irrefutable solid evidence that you know what you say you know. So for instance, if you, well let's look this way, if we looked out here, and you saw Diamond Head. And I were to ask you, how do you know Diamond Head's there? 
You would have to give me evidence that's irrefutable. That's what an epistemologist tries to do. You could say, well, I see it. That proves it. Of course, I could then ask you, have you ever thought you saw something that really wasn't there? And if you say, yes, I have, then you could say, I can't prove it just because I see it. And we could go through a whole list of different things that you could say, this is how I know, this is how I know. And you might think this is kind of a, like a goofy argument. Why would anybody devote their lives to this? But it's really not. We, we need to know why we know what we know. We need to know how we know what we know. What do we base that on? And so let me ask you some questions. If you think you're smart, how do you know you're smart? Well, we actually have some tests, right? If you think you're smart in a certain field, we can have a test. And maybe it's a written test, but in some fields it might be something else. It might be you actually demonstrate it. Somehow we can demonstrate intelligence at some level. Even if it's not a, a perfect instrument, we get some idea. We get some idea. Pretty sure, like, you know, I remember back in the day when they used to give what they called IQ tests, right? I'm pretty sure that some people that may be rated as genius maybe really weren't genius, and some people who rated as less than genius maybe were actually genius. But I'm pretty sure if you scored a zero, that you probably weren't the most intelligent person in the world. And if you scored a 200, you probably were really, really smart. So even though we might dispute some of the ways the instrument was being used and all of those things, overall there was an instrument to give us some idea. Well, how do you know you're good at anything? Well, again, depends on what the thing is, right? We have ways to measure that. If you think, oh, I'm good at basketball. Well, are you good at basketball? Well, uh, go play basketball. Play against people who are good. If you think I'm really good at, at cooking, well, you gotta cook something. If you guys want to prove you're good at cooking to me, just make me stuff and bring it to my office, you know, Monday through Friday around lunchtime, and I'll verify it for you. Um, if you want to know what to cook, I'll tell you that too. But how do we know that we're related to someone? Well, again, we have tests, we have DNA tests, things like that. We can, we can demonstrate relationship. If it's a legal relationship, maybe we have documents. But then we get to the question today, how do you know? How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know? Are you basing your Christianity on the things that the Bible says you should base your Christianity on? That's the question. And as we've talked about over the past several months, and by the way, if you've missed these sermons or you want to be reminded of them, they're all online. You can go and listen to them again. But as we've been talking about, really the question is not simply, how do you know you're a Christian? The, the question is, how do you know you're a disciple? Because you cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. These, these are not like, disciple is not option. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not like you get to choose, like, oh, I just want the basic package, you know, I don't go to hell, and, you know, you give me a guardian angel, you assign me a guardian angel, I don't go to hell, and when I need trouble, I have a, you know, I can call. That's the package I want. 
I don't want the more advanced package that talks about discipleship and all that. No, that's not how Christianity works. You don't get to select which version of Christianity you want. It's, it's all. It's, as we sing sometimes, with one of the songs Cheryl's introduced to, it's all of me or none of me. It's not a either or. So how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm a disciple? Well, Jesus actually gives us some tests. He actually gives us some ways to know this. And some of them are qualitative things. You know, Paul writes about a qualitative way that we know we're Christians is that when the fruit of the Spirit is growing in our lives, that as we uh, understand more and grow more, that, that we, we become you know, more patient, more loving, more kind, more humble. And, and we, we have that, but that's kind of a qualitative thing because how do I measure that? How do I measure humility? It's hard to measure. And, and how do I even know where the baseline is? Because some of you started out as Christians already pretty humble, already pretty good servant-hearted people, and so Christianity in that area didn't have as much of an effect on your life because you were already there. You had to have other areas where it's manifest. And some of us, like, when we came to Christ, we were so selfish, so self-centered, so full of pride, so narcissistic, it's all about me, that any movement forward, any bit of just a little bit of humility would be a huge victory. So we have qualitative things. But today, Jesus is going to give us something that we can actually look at. We can actually see. We can actually experience. How do we know? Well, Jesus is concluding this teaching on the kingdom, Sermon on the Mount. And he says in Matthew 7, verse 21, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, ever since I was young and I would hear sermons on this, pastors would kind of do this, kind of backtrack. Oh, this isn't talking about work salvation. This isn't talking about you earning your faith. This is, this is, this, you know, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you got your place in heaven. And I remember hearing it and it kind of made me feel good. But then I remember studying it more. And when I studied it more, what I realized is we don't like when Jesus says hard things. And so then we want to soften it. We want to explain it in a way that, you know, kind of lets us keep our place. It's a problem. You see, this verse suffers from the same problem some of the previous things Jesus said, is that when people who are still caught up 
in the world, even though they think that they're Christians, they think that they're believers, they think that they're disciples, but they're still caught up by the things of the world, when they read the words of Jesus, it always comes out misinterpreted. So when they read about, seek ye first the kingdom of God, all they can care about is, oh, but he's going to meet my needs. They're obsessed with their needs being met, and so they read that whole passage that, that Jesus gives us at the end of chapter 6, and, he's, and it doesn't matter that he says, seek first the kingdom. All they care about is, but you're going to meet my needs, right? Because really, Jesus, I care about my needs first, and then we'll talk about the stuff you think are, is important. And Jesus goes, no. If you're my disciple, it's not about your needs first. Trust that I will take care of your needs. Seek first the kingdom. We come here and people are afflicted by the same thing because what they really want to know, when, whenever, whenever Jesus says something like this or this comes up in scripture, what they really want to know is, I'm still going to be in heaven, right? I'm still good. I'm still good. I'm still in heaven, right? Because... Because, you know, I, I accepted Jesus Christ when I was younger, and I, I'm still good. And no matter what the explanation is, no matter what the words say, it's like they don't think about that. They just think about, at the end of the day, I'm still going to heaven, right? Well, I'm not going to soften this. I'm not going to explain it away. Here's what I am going to tell you. I am going to tell you this, that if you truly have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, what Jesus promises to do, he promises to give you his spirit, to give you the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life, and the Holy Spirit in your life will change you you will be transformed, and you will not just be transformed for the first few months or for a couple years, and then you're good, and you're going to go off on your own. I got the basics. Now I can just kind of live. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have the Spirit, you will be changed every day. It's one of the reasons I ask you this. I don't ask you this to be judgmental. I ask you this because I care so much about you. When is the last time you know the Holy Spirit got a hold of your life and changed something in you? Got rid of one of those, those, those pieces of anger and bitterness and resentment. The things that I'm just stuck in my ways and this is who I am and God can't change me. When is the last time that happened? If you're a Christian doesn't mean it happens, you notice it every day. But you know, you know. You know today, you're more like Jesus than you were a year ago. It doesn't stop. Well, I'll take that back. It does stop. It stops when you become perfectly like Jesus. If that's you, you know on the visitor's card we have in the program? Write down that you've arrived and you are perfectly like Jesus. Because I'd like to meet you. Because I've never met anybody there. And as a matter of fact, if you think you're close, 
If you think like, I got about 80% Jesus, still 20% me, I'd like to know that too. Because you're way ahead of me. You're way ahead of me. Yeah. These things that Jesus is saying to the true disciple don't bother him. They don't bother him because they know the Holy Spirit's in my life. And even though I'm not perfect, I'm on this journey. And this journey is I am constantly becoming more like Jesus. And we as a community of disciples know we're not perfect. No, we're not there yet. But we don't accept our imperfection by saying, we're not perfect. This is who we are. Love us or leave us. No, we say we're on a journey together to become more and more like the body of Christ that God's called us to be. That's our journey. And we do it, and we do it together. But a lot of people, they, they have this idea, you know, this is so American. You know, they, they think like, okay, I got this contract with God. He put it in his word, right? If I just, you know, what, what's Paul say in Romans? Oh, if you just uh, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that, that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. Okay, I fulfilled the contract. I've found the loophole. Now I can just go live however I want to live. Oh, I'll basically be a good person and, you know, I'll show up. But God, when I show up to the pearly gates and Jesus says, why should I let you into my heaven? I will hold up Romans 10 and say, this is why. I said these words. They're magic. You got to let me in. not what the Bible teaches us. If your Christianity is based on calling out Lord, Lord, in whatever words you did, if, there, if, it, if it's based on years ago I prayed the sinner's prayer, you need to really listen. Because Jesus is saying, if that's all you've done, if all you've done is called out, Lord, Lord, it's not enough. It is not enough to just call Jesus Lord. Understand what that means. It doesn't just mean that it's just because our words can be empty. It's because I think there's a wrong idea here. What we think we say when you don't really get it, what you think you say when you say Jesus is Lord, what you think you are doing is you are making him Lord. Your words do not make him Lord. He is Lord whether you acknowledge it or not. Jesus is Lord. Whether you acknowledge it or not, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're simply agreeing. You're agreeing with the fact. And you're doing a very, very, very smart thing. You are saying, Jesus, the Lord, not just the Lord of my life, not just the Lord of this earth, but the Lord of all creation. I want to be on your side. Our words don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. Our words are our acknowledgement of the fact that he is Lord 
And now we want to serve him. I think that's the part that gets kind of messed up. You know, a lot of times we talk about just Jesus being Savior, and he is Savior. Don't get me wrong. He is Savior. He is the one who who saves us from sin. He is the one who saves us from death. He is the one that, that gives us eternal life. But he is also Lord. He is also Lord. But see, another kind of thing that's happening in Christianity today is, is, that, is that people are taking even that word Lord and saying, okay, Jesus is Lord. But the Bible is not necessarily the truth. It's got truth in it, but it's not necessarily the truth. And so he's Lord, and I will obey him. But if I'm not going to accept the Bible as God's word and as truth, where am I going to get my directions from? How is the Lord now going to communicate with me if not through his word? Well, that's why the church today, and it's not new, it's always been there, but it's threatened more than ever by just holding on to the language of Christianity, but losing the content of it, allowing society to define for us what is right and what is wrong. And what's scary about it is that we will marry that to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we will follow what culture and society tells us is right or wrong, thinking that it's what Jesus wants us to do. And we will follow it with the same fervor as the saints before us. And it's a scary thing. It's scary for both reasons. One is it, it, it obviously weakens the church, but second of all, it takes people that want to give their lives for Christ, want to surrender all, and they, they give it for the wrong thing. They chase after something. They, they defend something that, that is wrong instead of doing what God has defined as right. It's a scary thing. Once the Bible loses its place as God's revelation, once it loses its place as truth, we're just going to make it up as we go. By the way, the rest of the world's already doing that. So the rest of the world's already doing it. We're just late to the party. He's not Lord just because you call him Lord. It's not enough to just call Jesus Lord. You know, well, we can deal with that, you know, some of us. We're like, okay, okay, because most of us in this room don't think that when we prayed a prayer, they were magic words. Some of you might, but I think most of you don't believe that that if you just say words, if I could just get people to say words, whether they mean them or not, the words are magic. Most of you don't believe that. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody believes that. So you're pretty good with that Lord, Lord thing. And what we say is you really got to mean it. That's partly true. The harder thing is the second thing he says. He says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? How many of you have prophesied in Jesus' name? 
How many of you have cast out demons? How many of you have done mighty works? How many of you have even done anything kind of close to it? And if someone came in and did those things, what would we do? We would immediately think, that is a super awesome Christian. They must be so close to God. We would assume that by what they're doing. By the way, there's nothing wrong with doing great things for God. There's a problem. There's a problem here. They're doing it, and it seems like they believe that they are doing it in Jesus' name. It seems like they believe they are doing it for the right reasons. But, but Jesus says these words. They are the words you should fear the most in all of existence, in all of the universe, in all time. You should fear, you should fear Jesus saying these words to you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Now we know God and the Son of God, they're omniscient. They know all things. He's not talking about, hey, wait a minute, who created you? Where'd you come from? Kind of shocked me there. No. Just talking about it in the sense of relationship. We were never one. You never had my spirit. Oh, you might have been a good person, and you might have done more impressive things than other people, and you might have even thought you were doing it in my name, but you were doing them by your own power, and you were not doing them because of a relationship with me, the power of my word, and the power of my spirit. I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, you workers of lawlessness. You know, some of you know when I was younger that I thought about being a lawyer. And this would, you know, kind of be the time I'd be like, okay, wait, 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 God. Wait, wait, I got my lawyer here. Uh, first of all, show him the contract. And second of all, show him the evidence. And look, look at all the things I did for you. Look at all the great works I did. Look at all these people that, that, that noticed and, and their lives were changed because of my ministry. Look at all that. Isn't that good enough? Come on. Make my case. Jesus doesn't just say it's not good enough. He says that it is lawlessness. Things that we would think are awesome and we would think are just great acts of Christians. He, he says they are lawlessness. And they are lawlessness because they were done outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they're done outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they couldn't possibly be done because of the Spirit of God within us and his love transforming us. They couldn't be an expression of love. They couldn't be a revelation of God. They are simply something we've done on our own. 
and we've attached God's name to it. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I'm going to admit, sometimes when I'm preaching and I come to a text, sometimes I think like, oh, this is talking to me. And sometimes I actually think about there are certain people in this church that this is talking directly to them. But when I'm saying this, I I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not saying you're one of these people. I'm just telling you this. It's lawless. Calls it lawlessness because it violates the most fundamental principle of law. It wasn't done out of love for God and out of love for others. It was done from some form of self-love. And because of that, it's lawless. Well, if you go back up to verse 21, it says, Christians do the will of God with God's heart. It tells us that the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he says, you have to do the will, but then he gives us all these works, and he calls it lawlessness. And that's why we have to understand it's not simply doing the will of God. It's doing the will of God with God's heart, with God's motivation. And we've talked about this before. What is, you know, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is where, where, where God's reign is manifest. And how do we experience this in this world? Well, one of the ways we experience this is in a unity that's based on the love of God, the unconditional love of God. kingdom is God's love lived out by Christ's disciples in community. And as we've talked about before, it's hard. No, it's more than hard. It's dangerous. It's actually more than dangerous. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to do this. That's why we need, that's why we need a spirit. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be strange. It's going to have, you know, involve us overcoming some of our own personality traits. It's going to have us overcoming our culture and our society and, and everything. And it's going to be about having a radical closeness. I'll use the word that makes people uncomfortable. An intimacy where we know one another. It's going to require that. And I've told you before, this isn't popular. If I want to make a big church small, I preach this sermon. I move in this direction. Because part of what helps churches grow numerically is this kind of promise that that we, we keep each other at a close, comfortable, but not too close distance. It's not the church. We do the will of God with God's heart. I'm going to read to you this, 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 at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives a more specific example of this. It's not the only test, but it is one of the tests important enough to Jesus, for Jesus to preach in another sermon. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to expound upon it that much. It's, a, it's 
pretty long passage, and most of you have heard it before, but as you're listening to it, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about it in context, because this, this is one of those Bible verses often taken out of context. Some people think it refers to why Christians should care about the poor in the world. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Christians in a church meeting the needs of one another. Keep that in your head as you're reading it. That's what, the, that's what the passage is about. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. It's in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. It says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? We've heard this, I think. If you haven't, understand what's going on. This judgment. The Son of Man, Jesus, is there judging. And he's divided into two groups. And he's talking to the ones that he's welcomed. And in, in Jewish first century culture, it was the sheep. They were viewed more positively than goats. And, and, and so he's saying, you know, you, you took care of me. You took care of me. That's why you're here. You took care of me. And they're, they're perplexed. They're like, we don't remember seeing you. We take care of you. And then he says this in verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Notice he says, my brothers. Matthew goes to pains to distinguish between the world and the brothers. And of course, the way that it was talked about then, it includes men and women. The world and my brothers. The son, we're the adopted sons. The adopted sons and daughters, we're and the brothers, and he says, the least of these. He's talking about the church. He's saying, when you are meeting the needs of each other in the church, especially the least, when you were doing that, you were loving me. You were meeting my needs. See, we don't like this. We like it to be like the poor people out there because we don't have to live with them. We like it to be the needy people out there because we can just send them stuff. 
We don't have to live with them. But he says, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, it's different. Verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. This is telling me it's, it's not, we, we tend to think of this as like each individual Christian, and that's fine, but I think the, mass, the, the bigger message that Jesus is saying is, do you want to know how I, how I recognize my sheep? Do you want to know how I recognize my church? How I recognize my flock? This is how. They're meeting the needs of each other in the church. They're meeting the needs. That's the kingdom test here. The kingdom test is, does anyone in the church have unmet needs? See, it's not just meeting the needs. It's meeting the needs for the right reasons, with God's heart, but it is meeting the needs. Are we even aware of each other's needs? Do we know each other well enough? And, you know, usually in my experience with church and with groups, you know, there's two kinds of people. There's people that have no problem telling you their needs. My dad's side of the family, no problem. If we ever went and visited my grandparents, first hour was... Grandma, grandpa, auntie, my dad, talking about all their health problems that they've had since the last time they saw each other. No problem talking about their needs. You know, my dad would be like, I don't know why people complain about Kaiser. I always get an appointment whenever I need them. That's because he was not afraid to every time talk about he's dying. You know, I stub my toe and I think I'm going to die. Okay, I got you an appointment. Mom opposite. Mom is like, she didn't want anybody to know she had a need. If she got sick, she'd just go upstairs. You know, would come over and visit. Oh, where's mom? She's upstairs in her room. She didn't want anybody to know. You see, if we're going to be the church, we can't just be a bunch of people who are just always talking about our needs, because sometimes our needs are not really needs. We're just whiny. But at the same time, we can't be people that never share our needs, that never let our brothers and sisters do what Christ has called them to do, which is meet our needs. We don't like that. We like to act like we're self-sufficient, we got it all together. That's not Christian. It's not biblical. It's very American. But it's not biblical. Jesus doesn't give people it out. He doesn't say like, oh, but we, we, we didn't know. Jesus' response, you should have known. 
If you were really the body of Christ, you should have known. Even if the person didn't tell you, you should have known. You see, what happens is in churches, you get these unhealthy relationships. You get people who are helpers, and they, they, they just like to help, but they don't like to be helped. And then you have people who like to be helped but don't like to help. You know what that creates? It creates this kind of unhealthy, codependent relationship that seems okay at first. Seems okay because, hey, everybody's happy. Until the people who help all the time actually have needs, then it all falls apart. Do we want to help, even if we can't? Does it bug us that we know that there's brothers and sisters in this church that need help and we cannot help them? It's part of the test. Do we know? Do we want to help? When we can help, are we helping? Even if we don't know how, we know someone needs help, and I myself will, will, will know that some people need help, and I know I'm not qualified to help them, and it bugs me. Does it bug you? Are we at least lifting one another up in prayer? The test is how we treat our brothers, how we treat our sisters, and why we do it. Do we know them enough to know their needs? Do we know them enough to be able to meet their needs in a way that they'll receive it? Are we meeting the needs, especially of the least of these? It says we will we'll be known by God by our love for one another. And I always feel in this day and age, Important to add this. We've talked about one test being love. Okay? It's a huge test. But let me help you understand what I talked about earlier about God's word and God's truth is also, it's also important, essential. This is what we need to be careful of. Love without holiness. Holiness without love. Neither one of those is what God has called us to be. He's called us to be people of holy love. People who, who are so devoted to his truth that they want to, they want to live what's in his word and they want to know his word, but they want to do it all with his supernatural love. Holy love. It's the mark of the church. It's the test.